This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. When trying to address the more than $4 trillion annual cost of U.S. healthcare, policymakers often target the nearly $600 billion cost of drugs. While drug manufacturers can point to the high cost of development and testing as justification for their prices, generic drugs, those that have gone off patent protection, seldom charge prices that substantially exceed production cost. Indeed, according to the Government Accountability Office, generics saved the U.S. healthcare system more than $1 trillion from 1999 to 2010. Recently, however, price spikes, anti-competitive practices, and supply chain complexities have showcased weaknesses and inefficiencies in the generic market, such as the fact that one in five generic drugs doubled in price between 2014 and 2017. Seeing this uptick in generic pricing as a business opportunity, Billionaire and Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, in January of this year, launched the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, selling more than 100 generic prescription drugs online, some at substantially lower than average market prices. His direct-to-consumer model, if successful, could substantially disrupt the generic market, saving billions and offering low-income consumers access to once cost-prohibitive drugs. Why do the prices of many generic drugs still substantially exceed costs? who stands to benefit from direct-to-consumer innovations, and how can patients and policymakers work to ensure this new model is embraced by those most in need. My guest today is Dr. Hussein Lalani, a clinical research fellow and internist at Brigham and Women Hospital. In a research piece recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine entitled Potential Medicare Part D Savings on Generic Drugs from the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, Dr. Lalani's examined the potential $100 billion cost savings were Medicare to purchase drugs offered from Mark Cuban's company. We will discuss how the inner workings of our healthcare system created this opportunity for Mr. Cuban's model, how far this model could go towards saving money for U.S. drug consumers, and what steps policymakers and individuals can take to encourage a robust uptake of this innovative model. When I return, I'll be joined by Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dr. Hussein Lalani. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by internist and researcher, Dr. Hussein Lalani. Welcome to Hubwonk, Hussein. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. All right. This is a fairly complex topic uh, that deserves to be taken part, apart uh, uh, for our listeners piece by piece. Uh, many of them are not uh, healthcare system experts. So um, let's start at the beginning. We all agree that I think it's uh, roughly $600 billion a year that the U.S. spends on drugs and, and, uh, and, uh, and medicine. Um, uh, so we're not going to today focus in on new drugs uh, and the research and development that goes into new drugs, but rather those for which uh, the patent has expired or so-called generic drugs. So let's start at the beginning and talk about generic drugs. How does a drug go from being patent protected to generic? Thanks, Joe. That's that's a great question. You know, the, the Hatch-Waxman Act in 1984 um, is really the established the kind of the modern system for generic drug regulation in the United States. So companies come forward with a brand name product, that patent eventually expires, and generic companies are then required to prove that their drug is uh, chemically bioequivalent to the original brand name drug. 
And it goes through an extensive process at the FDA uh, that has been simplified. That's and it's known as the abbreviated new drug application or the ANDA process. And uh, and that is the process that all drug companies, uh, generic drug companies that want to bring a new drug to market have to go through. Um, and once they're able to prove that the drugs are bioequivalent um, and meet the standard, then they are able to uh, market that drug. Uh, but there are some caveats that make it challenging to do that sometimes. Okay, so I just yeah, one one step at a time. So um, you know, for those of us who are more versed in economics than in medicine, a, a generic a, 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 by that standard, and it seems like the government actually has tried to make it as easy as possible for others to produce this thing. It's it's more or less a commodity. In other words regardless of who produces it, it has the same efficacy and safety uh, regardless of, uh, of its origin. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the, uh, there's no formal requirement anymore to prove safety and efficacy for the generic drugs, but it is the same chemical ingredient. And they just have, there's ways to prove that the, uh, the two drugs are bioequivalent or that they pretty much produce the same levels in the blood. And that often satisfies that um, requirement. So if we're talking about somewhat generic uh, commodity and uh, we have a clear path to get uh, give uh, producers the opportunity to make this drug, um, in theory, uh, market forces would uh, suggest that um, because of competition, uh, the cost of the drug would be relatively small given that the uh, drugs are known to be relatively cheap to produce. They're expensive to develop, but relatively cheap to produce. Um, is it the case that generics in general are very, very, very cheap? Yeah, you know, for the for the vast for the majority of generics, uh, the prices have come down and over time, and they they can be uh, fairly inexpensive to produce. But there are some uh, generic products uh, that get that can still have substantial manufacturing costs. So it it um, it's hard to generalize entirely. But in general, yeah. The the uh, the costs are relatively low for production, and they have been dropping. We've seen over the last just two years as well. Okay, let, let's give our listeners a sense of uh, how big the generic market is. You mentioned it. I think it was 1984. Um, uh, I don't remember the name of the uh, uh, act, but um, it effectively uh, described terms of drugs coming off patent and into generic. I mentioned $600 billion tab for, for drugs. How much of that in, in numbers and in dollars uh, do generics represent? Is it a big portion or a relatively small portion? Yeah, it's actually a pretty small portion. Uh, so the way I like to think about it is about 90% of all prescriptions that are filled are generics, but they only represent about 20% of the overall spending of the health system and of sorry, of the overall health, uh, overall health spending. And that's about on average a dollar a day uh, or less for those generic medicines. Um, and when you contrast that to brand name medicines, brand name medicines are about 10% of all prescriptions, uh, but they make up the vast majority, about 80% of overall spending. And we know that they cost on average about $20 a day or so or more. So the effect of generics actually does work, but what we're going to talk about today is, despite the fact that in theory, uh, generics should uh, offer um, very little profit motive for um, for uh, you know price gouging. There's no you know competition would would uh, suggest it wouldn't be one wouldn't be able to do this, and yet we're going to talk about today 
a uh, innovation in generics whereby someone has entered the market and offered drugs uh, potentially substantially less in the generic world. So let's let's start with which drugs right now uh, in the that are generic are commanding a large enough profit margin to justify Mark. Well, we'll get to it. Mark Cuban's uh, uh, entry. Uh, how are we? How is it that we've gotten here? How is it that there's an opportunity uh, to compete in the generic world? So generic drugs are produced, as you mentioned, uh, by generic manufacturers, and then they must be delivered or distributed to the people. So somehow the drug is made, and then it needs to make it to the patient, um, the consumer at the pharmacy. And there is a over the years, there has been a complex distribution supply chain that has developed to distribute these drugs. And that includes a number of actors along the way. So there's uh, distributors or wholesalers uh, that work with manufacturers. There's then the, the pharmacies that directly buy from those distributors. There's the pharmacy benefit managers that negotiate on behalf of insurance companies. And then there are the insurance companies who, who pay uh, some portion of these drugs, uh, the drug costs for their uh, beneficiaries uh, who have the plan. So as you can see, there's kind of a, a, a number of actors along the way in the current market and supply chain market that all take a share of what the cost ends up being to patients. So it's not just uh, the cost of producing the drug uh, that that we have to pay for. And so, um, you know, that that's part of uh, in our in our latest research paper where we are able to somewhat isolate what happens when a new company like the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs Company comes in and purchases drugs directly from manufacturers and then sells them directly to the consumers without having all of the other actors um, in the middle of that process in the supply chain. So, um, you know, that that is an important thing to, to be mindful of. And, you know, there, there are also some barriers that keep the generic costs high for certain drugs. Uh, not every generic drug has a, a strong market. Um, there is limited competition for a small number of drugs, uh, about 5% or so of, of drugs. And then there's also ingredient shortages uh, that can lead to price spikes that we have seen um, in recent time as well. So uh, what you're saying is it's not a, a function of of producers charging a premium for uh, a generic, but rather it's the process. It's getting from the producer to the consumer, this labyrinth of, of process. Uh, we on this podcast have explored uh, why uh, or how PBMs uh, uh, contribute so much cost to the system, despite their promise to, to advocate for lower costs. Of course, insurance companies, uh, uh, ours is a, an insurance-driven uh, healthcare system, so we're familiar with that. So I think our audience is well acquainted with all the reasons why healthcare is so expensive. So let's 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 stipulate that it's a very uh, lengthy process from getting from producer to consumer. Um, so let's dive deeply into your the research you've done into uh, Mark Cuban's disruption. Um, given that um, all these drugs are prescribed drugs. Uh, and given that we're now getting more and more comfortable with going from uh, the consumer directly to producers, um, a la uh, internet and Amazon, these sort of things, um, has this direct-to-consumer model uh, uh, been tried before? And if it has, why hasn't it failed? Uh, why hasn't it succeeded in the past? Why have we allowed so many intermediaries to drive up our costs? 
Yeah, you know, there have been quite a few direct-to-consumer companies that have offered uh, low-cost generic, generic medicines. Uh, the most popular one that uh, people may be familiar with is Walmart. Uh, back in 2006, Walmart launched the $4 list, uh, which now includes about 100 drugs that they sell um, at anywhere from $4 to $15. Um, and direct-to-consumer, you can just go directly to the pharmacy and pick that up. Um, and there are other chains, drugstores as well, that have started to offer discounts uh, for low-cost generics. That includes Costco with their prescription drug savings program. Um, I believe Kroger also has a program like this. Um, and since then, uh, in 2011, we also saw the introduction of a slightly different uh, market uh, in a uh, sort of yeah, we saw the introduction of a new sort of model to have lower cost generics, which was through coupons. Um, and that was GoodRx in 2011, where you can get hundreds to thousands of different coupons for various different drugs um, at, at, at any number of pharmacies in your zip code uh, to lower the costs of those, of those drugs. Um, the tricky thing is it, it depends on the zip code that you're in um, and it can really, the prices can really vary by the, by the drug. So uh, there have been a number of uh, previous innovations uh, to try and lower the cost for certain prescription drugs, generic drugs. Uh, but this, this company, the Mark Cuban company has, has started to gain um, a lot more, uh, you know, uh, you know, has started to gain a lot more attention in, in the media, um, in part, I think, because of Mark Cuban and his stature, but also because they are, they are starting to cover uh, what looks to be a larger number of uh, generic drugs than what Walmart and Costco have at the moment. Well, we all know Mark Cuban. He's uh, well known as both a, uh, a billionaire and uh, one of the uh, um, a panelist, I guess, on Shark Tank. So he's a, he's a wise investor. So he's seen opportunity here. So if you're saying there's not a lot of uh, money uh, in, I think he's, um, his ambition is ultimately to produce these drugs. Uh, I think uh, he's building something down in, uh, is it Austin or, or Dallas, Texas, where the chemicals go in one door and the drugs come out the other. So he's, uh, you know, total vertical integration. Um, what is it unique and what do you see as the opportunity or the addressable market for his particular model? How is it so much different than the others you mentioned? The main thing that's different about the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs Company is the promise and so far the delivery of complete price transparency for all their drugs. You can literally go to their website and type in the drug that you need. Um, if they have it, uh, then you'll be able to see what the cost is. And it very clearly breaks down the cost, which is the cost that they pay to purchase the drug, which they call the manufacturing cost. It's really like the purchasing cost, uh, plus 15% of a margin that they, that they take, and then $3 for a pharmacy dispensing fee. And then whatever price you see there, you can adjust it based on the quantity that you need um, and the dose that you need. And then don't forget to add the $5 flat rate of shipping. And that is, uh, that's the cost of the medicine. And it's the first time that we have seen um, the costs of a specific generic drug broken down that simply. Um, and so that, that in itself is something unique and it's helping us to get a sense for how much certain generics drugs actually cost and the cost of distributing those drugs. Um, and, and we're starting to learn more as more drugs come out. Um, 
So price transparency is a big part of our uh, formula, uh, our prescription. I'll use a medical term for uh, uh, helping to reform the uh, medical community. Uh, price transparency, letting consumers understand where the money's going and uh, who's producing what for what price so they can choose. Um, so um, I, I want to dive into uh, where uh, this, what the let's say, addressable market. Where what is is it? Sky's the limit. Could literally every drug uh, be uh, subject to this new model, where uh, ultimately um, we would know the price of everything? Well, I wish that was the case for all drugs. That would be amazing. I like to say often that, you know, as doctors, we prescribe medicines, but we don't really know the cost of the drugs we prescribe uh, often, unless they're commonly used available drugs on some of these uh, direct-to-consumer platforms that we talked about. Um, and so, it, but it is possible that if the company is able to negotiate with manufacturers for the vast majority of drugs, they may be able to have... Uh, thousands of generic drugs, uh, which I think is part of what it sounds like uh, they're trying to do. Um, and, and so that if, if they were able to achieve that, we would then have a better sense of how much those generic drugs cost. Um, it would be great to know how much the brand name drugs cost, since those are the ones that are the most challenging for patients to afford. And so... Yeah, sure. Now, when you talk about brand name, you're not talking about ones that are still on patent, are you? I am, yeah. Okay. All right. So um, again, I don't want to go too deep into that, but I mean, sort of an economist might justify the fact that uh, uh, something on patent is not um, expensive because um, uh, the price to produce, but rather you're you're in a sense uh, uh, clawing back the money it took to develop the drug in the first place, right? So it's a it's a different market dynamic. It's sort of you're 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 paying for past research rather than current production. Um, I mean, well, I would so say that like the only the only tricky part where this becomes relevant is that you know um, there are and this is really unfortunate, but it is a reality. We have seen uh, brand name manufacturers making it hard for generic manufacturers to come to market um, through what's called pay for delay deals. Uh, if you may be familiar, it's where no, we, haven't, we haven't covered that. So I, let, let's 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 go there. <laughs> yeah. So this is actually. It's really messed up, uh, but it, it it has been investigated uh, by the Federal Trade Commission, and there has been a number of both um, accusations and convictions of drug companies that have paid generic companies to not come to market, essentially preserving their monopoly and to allowing them to continue selling their uh, drug uh, without any competition. Lipitor is a really good case of that. Uh, so Pfizer. Uh, is what you know the maker of Lipitor, and they they did admit to doing this, where they essentially paid off their competition for a few years around 2008, um, and and that allowed them to continue selling the drug uh, for um, about I think close to two additional years without any competition, and that then you know kept the price high for consumers. Uh, but you know there are a couple other sort of challenges to this process, and one of them where it makes it hard for generics to come to market um, is what's called these patent thickets. And I'm not sure if you guys have covered that before, but it's, it's this idea where you, a drug company can patent a variety of different uh, minor processes uh, or my, aspects of drug development, but then extend the length of their monopoly protection. So, uh, you know, I would say that it, these sort of market forces 
um, it's not really a free market <laughs> for those sure. types of drugs, as we know. And and sadly, you know, the thought always, I think, the the thinking, at least in the theory of these uh, policies, was that yes, a drug will have um, ex- exclusivity for some period of time for the innovation, and then after that, uh, the drug will become more affordable for patients. And and while we have seen that in in many cases, there are a number of cases where that gets delayed or is actually really hard to produce a competitor uh, because of the, these these uh, kind of anti-competitive behaviors uh, that 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 have not been very well addressed, unfortunately, in our current market, and th- and that then ends up leading patients to to struggle and suffer with the cost. Well, in earlier um, shows, we have actually uh, highlighted uh, not necessarily the drug companies, but the intermediaries, and you mentioned them earlier in the show, uh, PBMs, insurance companies, that sort of thing. Let's talk about how they might uh, uh, thwart the effort to reduce the cost to consumers. Um, as, as they say, one, one person's waste is another person's uh, income. So I'm sure that uh, cutting out and going direct uh, obviates the need for insurance. And PB, you know, if you're going direct, you're not using insurance. I've got that right, right? If I'm going to Mark Cuban, I'm not making an insurance claim. Um, so describe for me, you know, how might these intermediaries defend their uh, position as as part of, you know part of the process between the consumer and the producer? Yeah, you know, d- delivering any kind of good uh, has some basic costs. So you know, whether it's gasoline or T-shirts or food. You know, there is some cost that we as consumers, I think, uh, understand that that will be required to transport the drug from, you know, location A to B and to then, you know, make that accessible. Um, but but notwithstanding, you know, the, there are there are a number of actors kind of in that in the supply chain that that have the ability to uh, both deliver the drug, but also capitalize on it being de- on its production and its delivery uh, process. So, um, you know, I think that I'm not sure how they would necessarily defend themselves, but they may say that, you know, uh, you know, they're just, they're paying for the cost of what it takes to get dr- drug A to drug B. Um, and the, the thing to keep in mind that is often discussed in kind of the, in the lay press and uh, about pharmacy benefit managers and insurers is that, you know, this concept of, of rebates, but that doesn't really apply to generic drugs. And we, we restricted our sort of uh, our analysis to really generic drugs. And so in this case, uh, there really are little to no uh, of these transfers happening uh, uh, in terms of rebates between manufacturers and pharmacy benefit managers. So, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than with brand name drugs. So let me ask you a hypothetical. If if I can go to Mark Cuban and the the drug is twenty dollars, right, and I can go through my insurance company, uh, then ultimately it's on the PBM's formulary, and it's uh, fifty dollars, but I get a forty dollar discount, um, you know, or I can take the dollar, the ten dollars I spend uh, through my insurance company and apply it to my deductibles. Aren't I incentivized then to avoid going to Mark Cuban and instead going through my insurance company because? Ultimately, the cost is lower to me, even though it's higher to the system. That's how I can imagine uh, the, I, I don't say they're not morally defending it, but they're actually defending their position by forcing you or encouraging you through lower uh, out-of-pocket fees to going through this elaborate labyrinth of uh, payment systems rather than direct to the manufacturer. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, you know, 
A number of drugs are actually, depending on the type of insurance you have um, and the, the drug plan that you have, it can definitely be cheaper to just go through your insurance and buy the medicine. Uh, but for people that are underinsured uh, with high deductible health plans or high out-of-pocket costs, which is you know about half of people that get their insurance from their job through their workplace, and if you're uninsured, you don't really have very many options sometimes. Now you can try coupons or patient assistance programs, uh, but in those cases, uh, a company like Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs Company could be helpful to you. But uh, you know there was an interesting analysis that was done of the Costco company. Um, of Costco's prescription drug program uh, back just a few years ago. And they looked at Medicare patients in particular, and they found that only about 11% of the time was it cheaper for the Medicare patients uh, in Part D to pay out of pocket at Costco than it was to just use their insurance. And so, you know, consumers are incentivized based on their cost. If it's a low cost, they're probably going to go with that. I think the tricky part that is a little bit nuanced that, uh, we're starting to learn more and more about and and that is something that I do think needs to be looked into is what's the tiering of drugs. As you're probably familiar, when you look at your insurance card, there's often a different copay for a different tier of the drug. So there's the first tier, second tier, third tier, and oftentimes a fourth and a fifth tier. But most people have at least three tiers or more. And usually, historically, generics have often been in tier one, uh, the lowest cost tier, which can often be, you know, free or $10 or less. But we're starting to see that over the last few years, uh, pharmacy benefit managers and insurers have been start, have started to place some generic drugs on higher tiers, which means that they cost more out of pocket. And so that, you know, in those cases, it, it actually would cost the consumer more to pay for that higher copay than it would to go direct to consumer. So, um, you know, I guess I would say, Check what you're paying for your drugs and just do a quick search. I would probably check GoodRx and I would check the Mark Cuban company and see, you know, if you may be able to get a cheaper, uh, a cheaper deal somewhere else. And if it's, you know, if it's a substantial amount, it may be worth it for you. Well, let's talk about some of the um, the diseases and drugs that get a lot of attention as far as being very expensive. Uh, and particularly for, for low-income people, almost prohibitively expensive. I'm talking about the diseases of uh, diabetes and, and cancer. Um, we've had, we've known insulin. Uh, it's a familiar uh, drug or molecule, I guess, uh, for a long time. And yet we hear stories about um, unfortunate people with diabetes who literally have to decide between food and, and insulin. How is it possible, given our model of, of, of generic drugs, how is it possible and why is it that insulin costs so much to so many people. Yeah. Insulin is a great case of a lot of things going wrong in our drug, in our prescription drug system. Uh, it really is. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, it was discovered almost a hundred years ago. We celebrated the hundred year anniversary, I believe this year, actually. Um, and it was intended to be the discoverers from Canada wanted it to be available to everybody. Um, and they didn't even go about making money off of it in, in the in very early days. But what we've seen with gener with uh, with insulin is that there has been an evolution of the product that's delivered, uh, where there have been small modifications over the years, um, and monopolies and patents associated with those discoveries that have made it incredibly expensive to consumers. We just actually approved our first biosimilar, uh, which is kind of what, what is considered to be the competitor to a brand name insulin ever 
just recently uh, for Glargine or, or Lantus, the brand name insulin, uh, just very recently. And before that, there was no competition uh, for this long-acting insulin type. And so um, while there are some insulins, that there's, I believe, at least one in particular that's available over the um, for a lower cost at Walmart, that's called Relyon, a lot of these insulin uh, insulins are incredibly expensive um, as, because there is no competition and because it, it is a broken market. Um, and so um, it's really sad and, and frustrating to watch patients suffer uh, with, with those high costs. And especially if they're um, underinsured or uninsured, they're in a really tough spot. Um, and as you mentioned, having to choose between putting food on the table and, and paying for their, for their life-saving medicines. So again, I'm trying to tie it back to Mark Cuban's model. Is it possible then ultimately now that it is that you do have a biosimilar approved uh, that could wind up on Mark Cuban's uh, a list of of direct. It, would it be possible then ultimately to say, look, uh, I you know I can cut my uh, insulin costs by ninety percent if I just go to a directly to manufacturer? Is there any barrier that you see now that it's you know in a sense technically possible to to disrupting that market profoundly with this model? Yeah. So you know the tricky thing about insulin uh, is that it is what's called a biologic. Uh, which is which means that it's a drug that's made using human proteins, and it is more complicated than a traditional pill or tablet, which in jargon terms we call small molecules. And so these biologics inherently have some additional complexities to production, which is part of what makes it challenging to produce. Uh, but the other part is also um, there are some differences in the way in which those drugs are approved by the FDA and the way in which they can be substituted for each other. All that withstanding, you know, there is actually um, uh, an interesting uh, disruptive model that is in the works from another company called Civica RX based out of Utah. And they uh, have a similar uh, sort of mindset, which their goal is they started, I think, a couple years ago. Uh, the concept is to bypass major drug makers and to manufacture or subcontract generic pharmaceuticals. And they do it mostly, they started off doing it for inpatient medicines, like medicines you would need in the hospital, antibiotics, um, blood thinners, that type of injectable medicines. So they actually have some experience in doing this. And interestingly, they recently started a new subsidiary of this company in partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's called Civica Script RX. And they, they claim that they're working on manufacturing and distributing insulin at a really low cost. So I do think it is possible uh, that it could happen, but just keep in mind that not all the insulins um, are, uh, there, there are many, many types of insulins. I, I'm not sure the exact number, but I'd say at least over 20 uh, different types. And so um, they, not only do you have to be able to make all those different types, but they also have to be, um, you know, off patent in order for that to happen. So th those are kind of some of the challenges that any company that tries to make insulin would, would have to, to face. So the technology is still not quite there. So, but watch this space. It, it, it you know, it may be right. Uh, so we're, we're on. Sure, on the it looks like we're on, we're getting closer uh, and it can't come soon enough. Sure. Let's, let's talk about another expensive and, and well, uh, well-documented um, uh, disease, which is cancer. 
I know there's a big problem. I was just reading an article in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine about the huge difference between whether you, depending on which kind of cancer you have, if you can get it, uh, the medicine through a pill, um, it's one sort of conversation. I'm talking about through Medicare. And if you have to go through to a doctor to get your medicine, uh, it's a different kind of compensation. And it, it really, whether you whether you go broke or, 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 or you are covered by Medicare really depends on the, the type of cancer you have, which seems profoundly unfair. <laughs> Uh, what can uh, this model that we're talking about have to do with either the the pill you get through the mail or or the one you go through the doctor? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, concept that you bring up, which really gets at the issue of Medicare Part D as a, uh, that reimburses outpatient prescriptions and Medicare Part B as in boy, uh, which is the kind of reimbursement for infusions based therapies through clinics. Um, and, you know, I I wish there were more ways in which we could lower the prices for these cancer medicines. To my knowledge, the vast majority of them, um, and there are actually ways to do it, but I don't know that there's a market solution right now because the vast majority of the reasons these drugs are expensive is because they are still brand name uh, and they're patent protected and they have long, they have monopolies. And so the prices we've seen uh, based on research that we just published recently as well, and uh, a paper in the New England Journal recently as well, the the prices of these drugs are being are, are rising precipitously. Um, and not only is it rising over time, but it also the launch prices, which is the initial price a company sets, uh, can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And so, it a new analysis actually showed that, um, as you mentioned, patients would pay up to ten thousand dollars out of pocket for certain cancer therapies. Um, and I don't really think I'm not I'm not aware of any ways in which the current uh, you know Mark Cuban company or any of the direct to consumer companies would be able to lower those costs. It, it really illustrates the challenge that we have, in, in part because those are brand name therapies and they are um, really able to work mostly on generic medicines. And so um, I, th that's a really an area for policymakers to to intervene and allow us to uh, you know, negotiate the cost of the medicine or find other ways in which to lower uh, those costs. And that would include preventing like annual increases in, in, those, in those prices. So um, yeah, I, I don't know that there's much that we can do on the, on the uh, direct-to-consumer side in that, in that arena. How, uh, just, uh, we didn't cover it at the top of the show, perhaps we should have. How long does a, um, a, a drug company enjoy a patent on a, on a new drug? And I, I, let, let's, uh, let, you describe the thickets and the uh, manipulations that are possible. But in theory, let's just say they're playing it straight. How long after you develop a drug do you get to sell it as effectively as a monopoly? Yeah, so you, you sub, my understanding is you submit uh, that new drug application or the NDA um, as you're starting out uh, in the discovery process. And it is, that patent is valid for approximately 20 years. And then there are exclusivities that get added on uh, on top of that. So it's usually seven years for small molecules or pills or tablets and up to 12 years for biologics. Um, and so, you know, that depending on where you are, uh, how long it takes for your drug to be completed, go through clinical trials, be approved, you then have kind of that remaining amount of time to market it, which research shows is about uh, about 12 years of patent protection um, before any exclusivities, as which would add more time to that. All right. Well, again, you know, we, we, we like markets around here. And I'll say, whereas it's unfortunate that uh, new drugs cost so much, uh, 
a lot of that money is going to provide incentives to, do, to develop new drugs. So, um, the, you know, there are some externalities that are, are favorable to the markets. We, the, but for those drug companies, those molecules or those drugs wouldn't exist. But let's let's shift our conversation because we're getting close to the end of our time together to policy. You mentioned policy. What is it that you think uh, we could do either to encourage um, the Mark Cuban model to, to grow into other spaces or to have policymakers educate consumers that they do have choices? You mentioned uh, one should go online and perhaps explore alternatives. How can we um, foster better, let's say, understanding, more transparency, more um, uh, understanding that could uh, accelerate the market forces to drive down the cost of drugs? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I think we really need to redesign the incentives in our system uh, to ensure that the pharmaceutical distribution system is focused on delivering accessible and affordable medicines to all Americans. Um, you know, that that is a challenge that uh, has not really been addressed, in, uh, especially for generic drugs uh, specifically. And you know, and that includes addressing the incentives along the way that that uh, companies that are entirely vertically integrated uh, are able to capitalize on. And I'm talking about, you know, those companies that are insurers and pharmacy benefit managers and pharmacies and distributors. They really have a tremendous amount of power in the current uh, market uh, when it comes to delivering the drugs because they not only pay for them uh, for their beneficiaries, but they also negotiate and then supply them uh, through, through the distribution channel. So I think you know, there, there is a role there for policy in, in terms of you know, limiting the amount of costs that are associated with distribution. I think we're starting to see that what very early, what that could look like with the cost plus drugs, where, where there's a limited amount of cost given uh, on, on top of the production cost. But you know, the tricky thing is, is uh, this distribution is still is still expensive in some ways. I mean, when you look at the analysis that we did, even when you buy uh, those uh, drugs directly from Mark Cuban in our sample of about 77 drugs that we looked into more carefully, um, it was still about 50% of the cost was, was to distribution, even with the low cost uh, that Mark Cuban's company offers. So I do think the, the price transparency is another area where we can learn more about the specific drugs and avenues uh, where we are overpaying and where there's an opportunity to, to lower costs um, for, for patients. Uh, I mean, big picture, most patients are able to afford their generic medicines without too much trouble. It really is, unfortunately, as we mentioned, the, the brand name drugs, and those aren't really addressed by these cur you know, current types of companies. Uh, they're not really sold. So, and the, the policy solutions for those are a lot are different. Are uh, the ones that you know you've probably heard are starting to heat up again um, in Washington when it comes to um, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices and preventing annual price increases and capping their out-of-pocket costs. So, some of those some of those um, reforms for the drugs that people are struggling to afford the most um, are, are really do need congressional sort of redesign and, and action, um, especially for Medicare Part D, which sadly is really broken and poorly designed for patients. So um, again, getting to the end of our show, do you think sort of, uh, I'm particularly fascinated by Mark Cuban's transparency. Uh, transparency you know, essentially gives consumers the information they need. Might he be creating his own market, meaning might there be now other Mark Cubans uh, competing against each other in a sense, providing consumers with all the data that they need so that um, each step of the process, uh, the distribution process, uh, can now be competitive and, 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 and theoretically compete each other out of uh, uh, excessive 
costs. Yeah, you know, I guess it is. Uh, I guess it is possible that other companies may pop up. Uh, you may have to talk with him and his folks to figure <laughs> out just how expensive it is to be able to to do what they're doing because uh, it does seem like a lot of work to negotiate all those prices directly with every single manufacturer and then to you know work on delivering all those drugs. Uh, they do use like an online pharmacy partner that helps part of that, but I think part of the one of the barriers is is just going through that entire process. And they have some of those competitors that we talked about early on um, in like, you know, Walmart and Costco. But um, so, you know, I guess, I guess we'll have to see uh, who, who decides to join the market here and pop up. Well, wonderful. Well, uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, I, where can our uh, listeners read more about your work? I, I, I mentioned it in the intro uh, before I had you on, but uh, where can they read more about the, the two papers you wrote in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share uh, a copy of the paper with you, and perhaps you can distribute that as well. Uh, but on the the, an, the Annals of Internal Medicine has published these two papers, and um, they are, they have been covered, thankfully, in, in some detail in, in, in the lay press. But I, I do encourage you to take a look at the, uh, the actual text for yourself so you can interpret it. And unfortunately, it does seem to be behind a paywall. So I'll, uh, I'll share with you what I can, so that way you can distribute that for, to folks uh, and, th- and they can, you know, uh, learn uh, more about it through there. Indeed. Okay. I, I we'll do what we can to sort of uh, uh, thwart uh, the, uh, the, the those who are trying to collect from our listeners. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can get it out there for free. Uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time today to, to share with us your, your view. This is a, uh, you know, n- not an easy problem to address, uh, but we're, we're chipping away at, at, the, at the edges. So thank you very much for your research and for your time today. Thanks so much, Joe. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk in your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to help us by sharing Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>